Hello, welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. And we're gonna talk about the gospel and Paul's letter to the second Corinthians today because it's about divine power. And what does it mean that the kingdom of God is present amongst us? What does it mean to live in this world as if you're living for another world? And that's at the heart of the gospel uh, message today. And so before we get to the gospel, which is in the very end of chapter four of the gospel of Mark, let me give you a quick Cliff Notes version of Mark chapters one, two, three. How did we get to chapter four? And you might remember that the gospel of Mark starts out with, this is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christos, and then immediately John the Baptist. A voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Because who's following? The Lord, Adonai. And the Lord is or a king or it's God. And in this case, both king and God. That's Mark chapter one, verse three. And then Jesus is baptized. Jesus goes out in the wilderness. Jesus overcomes the power of Satan. Jesus comes out of the wilderness and he preaches that after John has been arrested, he, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Here's what he said. One, this is the time of fulfillment. Two, the kingdom of God is at hand. Three, repent and believe in the gospel. There's the action plan for the action gospel. Think about what it all means, the time of fulfillment. What he's saying is, all the prophecies are fulfilled in me. Two, the kingdom of God is at hand. Does he mean an earthly kingdom? No, what he's referring to is himself. He is the kingdom of God. What does it mean when you're baptized into Jesus's body? You were baptized into the kingdom of God because he proclaims himself the kingdom of God. Three, repent and believe in the gospel. Well, if you're gonna be baptized in this man who died and rose from the dead, time to change how you think about the world because everything has changed. That's why whether or not Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon or the North defeated the South at Gettysburg, these are important events for one reason or another. There is only one that has event, human event, that has cosmic uh, implications, and that's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so he comes with a three-part plan. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then what does he do? Uh, starting right at the end of chapters one through verses uh, chapter three, really quickly, he casts out demons, power over evil, demonstrated in front of everybody. He cures lepers. Only God can cure a leper. There's no cure for leprosy. But he touches them and he makes them clean. He forgives sins. Remember, who can forgive sins but God, the Pharisees say. So boom, boom, boom. Power over evil, power over disease, power over human sin. And then that last story before we get to the Gospel of Mark, he and his disciples are walking through a field of grain and the disciples are plucking them off and eating them. And remember the Pharisees say, you can't work on the Sabbath, you can't do this stuff. And what does Jesus say? What's the key thing he says? He goes, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, wait a minute. God created the Sabbath. How can Jesus be the Lord of the Sabbath? 
at the heart of everything that has happened in chapters 1 to 3 is what divinity is. Pope Benedict XVI said Jesus didn't come to stop wars. Jesus didn't come to stop all disease. Jesus came to bring us the presence of God, the kingdom of God in the midst of all our earthly problems. And so, you know, you turn the page and you're in Mark chapter 4, this quickie little Bible study. And if you read through all four chapters uh, that I just described uh, with Mark chapter 4, you're going to understand the opening third of St. Mark so much better. And so it says Jesus is sitting on the sea. He's probably in a boat, but it doesn't say that. Why? Because it's the sound of God's voice echoing over the waters. How does creation start? Jesus, sep God separates the water. He, he because that's how they thought about the world, that the sky was just this dome. Why did it rain? Because there's huge reservoir of water up there. They didn't think about uh, evaporation and cloud formation. So he's sitting on the sea because that's where God's voice comes to, over the waters. This is about a statement of Jesus being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what does he say? Hear, O Israel, he says. In Hebrew, Shema Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the Shema. The Lord is one. Drill this into your kids. And then he starts talking about the kingdom of God. And how does the kingdom of God come? He tells the story about the sword. Do you remember? And some falls on a rocky path, some on fertile ground. You remember the story. And so to think about the sower and the idea of the gospel from last week about the kingdom of God growing slowly because sometimes we let anxiety destroy it in our life. Sometimes it falls on fertile ground and it gives a great return. Sometimes it's trampled underfoot by other people and the evil things that people do to beat faith out of one another. And sometimes it's just choked by all the weeds or the infertile ground. And so the idea of it is that can be your soul. It can be your soul depending on what day you get up. Any of those things could be operative in your life. They can be operative in all of humanity, right? Um, some people seem open to faith, others don't, others just never give it the time of day. And so it's somehow this experience of faith in your life is something you can understand because you see it in the larger world. What does it mean to say that one died for all? That if you have that much in common with the rest of humanity, then it's entirely believable that one man by his death on the cross can save you. And so at the heart of it, what is Mark describing for us? Mark's describing what the nature of divinity is and how we interact with divinity. And so I'm gonna give you this quickie point up front. You know, the Greeks and the Romans wouldn't have had any problems with people uh, saying, Christians saying, you know, Jesus is like Zeus. He has great power. 
And Zeus used to visit people. He always wanted to sleep with her teenage daughters. But sometimes he'd do nice things for people. But Jesus wasn't like that at all. He came and he conquered evil. And he, he cured lepers because he was just Zeus amongst us. They wouldn't have any problem with that because that's how they thought about divinity. Mark and Judaism would have a great problem with that because it's not who God is. This is very much about how you think about God. He is not a problem solver that shows up in your life. Jesus is the God that is now through your baptism asleep in you. The story about the storm on the sea. We all have storms in our life. We have interior storms. And they never calm down if we don't wake Jesus up. He's there. But if you want to do good, you keep focused on Jesus present in that little boat that you call your body. This is how the scriptures work. At a moral level, at an anagogical level, and an analogical level. They tell us something about how we should live. They tell us something about what it means to be a human being. And they tell us something about what it looks like for eternal life. And so let's take a moment and just walk through the different readings in the gospel. And so in the gospel, what I want to do is compare the psalm from today, Psalm 107, and you can get all of these on the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops site. Uh, or you could just open up your Bible and read it. Or you can read the story of Jesus who stills the storm. Why is the psalm about how God uh, uh, stops a storm at sea in Psalm 107? What is revealed in this storm at sea at the end of the chap, uh, Gospel of Mark? Well, here's what Psalm 107, if you just read through it and pay attention. There's sailors in a ship. There's a stormy wind and waves. The sailors' courage melts away. They cry out to Adonai to help them, the Lord. The Lord stills the storm, and the waves of the sea are quiet. Does that story sound familiar? Because it's exactly the story in Mark 4. There's disciples in the boats. There's stormy winds and waves. The disciples are afraid. They cry out to Jesus. They, Jesus stills the storm. There was a great calm. And that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that story about the calming the story at the, sea, the storm at sea. It's why the early church looked at the Old Testament and understood that all of these things that Jesus did was to point back to the understanding that they already had from the scriptures of who God is. And so it's very much about who God is. God is not like Zeus that throws lightning bolts. God is the absolute basis of all of reality. And that's why Jesus has power over evil, which is created. It's not a God. Satan is not a God. He is just a creature. He has power over disease because power over his creatures. He has power over sin because it's a dysfunction in his creation. He has power over the seas in Gospel 4. The, uh, if you look at the other reading, which is from Job chapter 38, and it's about Job, and you know, Job's complaining. And God comes to him, and what does God do? 
God speaks out of the whirlwind. He speaks out of the storm. This is God present in the storm in Job's life. And what's it say in the reading? Who shut the sea with its doors, says God to Job. Because he's saying, hey, Job, where were you when I built this? Where were you when I founded the pillars of the earth? Where were you when I created Adam and Eve? Who are you to tell me how to do this? Gosh, it's so hard to be have a supervisor. That is Job. What does he know about anything? This is God's complaint about, against us. And so it says, who... Sh- one of the things that God says to Job is, who shut in the sea with its doors? Chapter 38, verse 8. So, you know, how the early church look at all of this. St. Athanasius said about this story, about Jesus asleep in the boat, and Mark, quote, even while he was asleep on the pillow, the Lord was testing his disciples. For when he arose and rebuked the sea and silenced the storm, he plainly disclosed that the Lord who rebuked it was not a create creature, but rather its creator. St. Augustine had a great take on this story because this story is about human reality at different levels. And so he says, he, this was in one of his sermons to his people in Hippo. He was a good preacher. I want to urge you not to let the faith sleep in your hearts against the storms and waves of the world. After all, it can scarcely be true that Christ the Lord had power over death and did not have power over sleep, and that sleep possibly overtook the Almighty against his will as he was out sailing one day. You see, we're all temples of God, Augustine says, and every one of us is sailing in a boat in his heart. And then he says this, you've heard an insult. It's a high wind. You got angry. It's a wave. So as the wind blows and the waves break, the boat is in peril. Your heart is in peril. Your heart is tossed about. When you hear the insult, you're eager to avenge it. You do, you do avenge it. And by giving way to someone else's evil, you suffer shipwreck. And what is that? Because Christ is asleep in you. What does it mean that Christ is asleep in you? That you have forgotten Christ? So wake up, remember Christ, let Christ stay awake in you, think about him. That's what prayer is. By the way, that's Sermon 63, which you can read online if you want to read more of St. Augustine's preaching on this very story. But it's this question that's raised in the very first chapter of Mark about the kingdom of God being among you. Is the kingdom of God among you if you let Jesus continue to sleep in your heart? And this is what St. Paul is talking about in his second letter to the Corinthians. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is probably a collection of letters. That's why when, when you read through the first letter to the Corinthians, it's really this kind of coherent track that you can make sense of everything. The problem with the second letter to the Corinthians, if you read through it all, it seems to jump around, and that's why some scholars think maybe it was just a series of shorter less uh, letters that when they were joined together, they were joined together in one scroll. Just remember what Paul had written. But in this part that we read at Mass today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is all about the kingdom of God amongst us and how it comes into our life through baptism and new life. 
because baptism actually does something. It's why we baptize children, because you do not want to deprive them of the gifts of eternal life. Uh, baptism isn't something we do for God. Eucharist isn't something we do for God. Confirmation, it's not something we do for God. Uh, confession, God doesn't need our confession. God doesn't need our forehead for the anointing of the sick. He doesn't need our palms for um, being a priest. He doesn't need male and female for marriage. All the sacraments are something God does for us. We respond to God by responding to his initiative in our sacramental life. So now listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 17. For the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all who have died, and he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Then from now on, therefore we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 17. Background. Jewish eschatology, and it underlies all of Catholic eschatology. In Jewish eschatology and about the Messiah, there is this old creation, this world of the flesh, which means corruption, sin, and death. What's coming is the new creation, the worlds that will come at the end. Um, and so these are the two ideas in Jewish eschatology, especially in that first century AD. Now I'm going to modify it so that you understand it in a Catholic sense. So take those two descriptors, the old creation, the fallen world we know so well, the new creation in the presence of God, which we want to experience. Imagine them as two circles that are only partially overlapping. And in that area where they're overlapping, put down the words in Christ, because in Christ is where the new creation and the old creation come together and overlap. The old creation is not gone yet. The new creation is not completely come yet. The in Christ part is this transitional period this time of Christianity. This is how St. Paul understands it. Now think about it again by going back through um, chapter five of 2 Corinthians. The first part, the first two verses. For the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him whom for their sake was raised. Okay, think about that. You know, we're such individualists in American culture. It's why people have trouble seeing that the cross saves. Um, but in everything that I was talking about in Gospel, of, in Gospel of Mark, it's how, even as individuals, so much of our life is caught up in the life of others. We suffer from evil. We suffer from disease. We suffer from sin. We suffer from fear. We... Um, 
we have trouble following God's lives, uh, God's laws. We all have the same problems. We are not completely individuals. You want to be a better person? Invite better people into your life. You want to be a worse person? Invite worse people in your life. Somehow we are connected at the hip with everybody. God takes this human reality, this communal connection where we learn language and culture and religion, good from bad, our values. We learn to desire because we generally want what other people want. Also, this is what causes us to clash when you fight over the same spouse or you fight over the same job or you fight over the same piece of property. We are all connected at the hip. And if that's the case, then one who enters that human reality can change the reality by changing how you think about it. That's why I say Christ will not change your past. He will change how you think about your past. And once he changes how you think about your past, then you are seeing the world in a new light. The next verse, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view, we regard him thus no longer. What's a human point of view? That really the end result is whatever you can get in this world. This is all there is. The Christian point of view is that everything, birth, marriage, uh, vocational choices, dying, they all point to God in the kingdom of heaven. And so we cannot look at people in purely materialist terms defined by this world. We see everything as a place where God encounters us because he encounters us in the fight in evil, disease, sin. Uh, he invites us in leisure and he encounters us in leisure and in work. And he encounters us even in our fears. God is present in all of his creation. Now we're to the last part of this reading. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and what he means, what St. Paul means is if you're baptized, that's how you become in Christ. It's not meaning that you just believe in Christ like a moral teacher and you're going to follow him. You have become in Christ. Then St. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In your baptism, then, this is how you enter into God. I know you've heard this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But imagine going back to the picture of the old creation in a big circle, the new creation in a big circle, overlapping, where the overlap is in Christ. This is St. Paul's contribution to eschatology in the Jewish way. And so he says it again in Romans chapter 6 because it's a consistent part of St. Paul's preaching. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be um, separated from God. So Romans chapter 6, it's this idea is that we're not just unique individuals. We are unique individuals 
in this huge community. It's how God is one God, three divine persons. And this image of human community is we're all distinctive, we're all the same. It's these two things that seem to, to be in conflict, but are not. And so the early preaching of the early church fathers, St. John Chrysostom says, we ought to live for him because we have been made something different in him. We now have a new life. The old things have passed away, refer to our sins and impiety. We cannot live for selfishness anymore. We live for Christ. And so the storm at sea, Mark chapter four. Let's turn to that in conclusion. So reading the Sunday readings from Job 38, Psalm 107, and the end of chapter four of the Gospel of Mark. What's the takeaway? Because it's this consistent view of divinity from how old is the, is the book of Job or Psalm 107. It's clearly centuries before Jesus' time. We know the Gospels uh, 2,000 plus years old. And we're in the present and they still speak to us. Why? Because we are individuals in community, not just with other people living at St. Mark, but this whole community of the people of God stretching back into time. That's why Jesus can die once for all and all can participate in that death and its salvation. The people that live before Jesus, the people that freely respond to Jesus after the time of his resurrection, like when you come to Eucharist. And so, you know, we talked about in 2 Corinthians this eschatological view of the, uh, of the Old Testament, that there's the old creation, and at some point, especially in Isaiah, the new creation's gonna come along. St. Paul redirects that, and he overlaps old and new and says that when you're baptized into Jesus, you become part of the new creation, but you're living in the old creation. But you can't live in the old creation by the old creation's terms. You have to live in the old creation by the terms of the new creation, and that's the life of grace. So St. Basil the Great, who was a contemporary of St. Augustine, roughly, he, he riffed, as it were, on uh, St. Paul's understanding of creation. And what St. Basil said, and it's really how we think about it, if you'll take a moment to understand this whole reality of human existence. St. Basil the Great says there's um, three creations, really. The first is the physical creation of the world. It's the Big Bang. It's however everything that we understand as our lived reality comes into being. Our lived reality is a creation. That is, it is not God. God is something separate from that. God interacts with his creation because we're his children, but God is not a crea created. And so the uncreated creator creates from nothing everything you and I understand. Then St. Basil says there's a second creation. And it's all the, the covenants of the Old Testament. It's the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses. It's the new covenant with Jesus. It's this progression from Noah to Abraham to Moses to Jesus. And so St. Basil says the second creation is from worse to better. 
And, you know, it is better. I mean, the old world was pretty rough. The world is still rough, but we see things differently. It's why even in secularist societies, it's really not okay to torture people. It's not okay to treat life as if it doesn't matter. Even though secular society does it, the criticisms that come out for racism, bigotry of all sorts, hate crimes, these things in the old world would probably have passed unnoticed. Um, but in the new world, because Christ has changed the world in the second creation from worse to better. And it's Christ in Noah, Christ in Abraham, Christ in Moses, and then it's the coming um, of the incarnation. And then what's the third uh, part of creation? Um, is the resurrection. When Jesus' teaching, going, bringing the world from worse to better, is now tied to the world that comes. Um, this participation in our baptism in, uh, in the sacraments, especially the sacrament of baptism. So I want to pull it together and leave it here. We're back to Mark chapter 4. It's a story of Jesus sleeping probably on St. Peter's pillow and uh, the disciples terrified and they wake him up. Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? Which is a great prayer, friends, for all of us. And you remember, Jesus just immediately rebukes the, the, the storms because they're like playthings to him. They're his, they're, he's everything that how creation came into being. And then do you remember what he says? You should read this scripture if you get the chance. He says, why are you terrified? Have you no faith? Because after four chapters of the action gospel and reading about the kingdom of God amongst us, when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he never left us. He's asleep right in each of us through our baptism. That's why St. Paul says it. And it's the meaning of this Mark chapter 4, this last story, is we live by faith, not by fear. We live in a new creation, though we're living in the old. And it's this faith that makes us hopeful people. It's this faith that makes us do acts of charity, which are consistent with how we understand the kingdom of God in which we currently live. And so this is Mark 4. This is how it's preached in, in, uh, in Paul's Second Corinthians. It's also about the way that Christ is made present in the Old Testament in chapter 38 of Job or Psalm 107. Uh, and ultimately, it's about divinity in your life. Uh, do you want Zeus to just start striking people down with uh, thunderbolts? That's a Greco-Roman idea. Or do you want to participate in what God is doing in this world? And if so, you look at how Jesus lived, how he walked, how he taught, how he treated people, how he encountered his own crucifixion, how he encountered all the things he talked to us about, about the sower of the seeds, infertile ground, rocky choked ground, all the anxieties and birds that show up to eat the seed that's been sowed in our soul. But if we keep purging ourselves of sin, we keep trying to understand God, the purgative and the unitive way, then the kingdom of God grows in each of us and we are united even close, more closely with our Lord. So pay attention to the words of St. Augustine. When you're feeling bad, 
turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, wake up. Can't you see we're perishing? Apparently, it's a prayer he does listen to, but it's the prayer of faith. God bless you. This has been Oral Valley Catholic. Take a chance and read once again through the first four chapters of Mark and understand the Gospels better. Until next week.